Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 109, Playing and Designing at the Intersections. Recorded at Metatopia 2015. Presented by Kat Jones, Krista White, Elsa S. Henry, and K.N. Granger. Apologies for the sound quality on this particular recording. I would like to get some feedback from you all about why you decided to come to this um, panel uh, so that we can perhaps tailor the discussion a little bit so that it's most productive for all of you. Um, So... Are you all right with starting? Sure. Great. I'm, I'm Eric. Uh, I'm a designer here this weekend. I'm showing two different games. And um, I chose to attend this panel because I've never heard the term intersectional or inter- intersection. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. So, like, I'm just open and interested. And, uh, you know, the rest of the description was like, okay, yes, I'd like to Do educate to myself on yep. all of these issues or non-issues or just, you know, making better games for more people. I like the one you think. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, so, I'm Sarah. Um, I, well, this is only baby related, I guess, but I, I write curriculum um, for teaching uh high school, middle school programming, and I always try to make that as intersectional as possible. Um, and the things that I love are, you know, programming and games. Um, and so I love hearing as much as I can about how uh, how people make things more intersectional and how I can try to make things more intersectional. And also, uh, I used to run the con, um, and I'm still, I did a very bad job not continuing to run the con, even though I'm <laughs> it's not technically this year. Um, so, I, I also like try to make sure that I, don't know, I, I try to make sure the things I'm involved in are as open to as many people as possible. So, love to hear when what other people say. Cool. Um. Hi, I'm Kate, um, and my answer is very similar. Um, I um, love talking about intersectionality. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, I'm Taylor. Uh, I think that uh, this is a really important topic, and especially um, applicable to to myself as a white man who likes to write games. Um, I think there's a lot of things that um, uh, that as a game designer I should consider. I'm Michael, and uh, yeah, I, I think that intersectionality is vital to making games that are good. All right, so why don't we go ahead and introduce ourselves? Would you like to start? Well, ah. <laughs> All right, so my name's Natalia. I go under the hand KN Granger for various reasons that I won't get into. Um, however, they are intersectional reasons. Uh, so, yeah, I run 
games and I write a lot of games. Uh, one of the priorities in all of my games is to increase accessibility as well as to minimize uh, minimize stigma in all its forms. So, uh, and as well as educate people who may not actually understand the purpose or value of intersectionality within those contexts. So, yeah, <laughs> sometimes that's harder than than not. So, yeah. I'm Elsa S. Henry. Um, I have a master's degree in women's history from Sarah Lawrence College, and I did my work uh, on disabled feminism and reproductive justice, and on burlesque and obscenity law. So my stuff is all about women's bodies being intersected with various kinds of privilege. Um, I'm also a game designer, and I run feministsonar.com. And I'm Kat Jones. Um, I... I'm finishing a PhD in sociology, but I also have a graduate certificate in uh, feminism, and it was from a program that was particularly intersectional. Um, I'll follow that up with my program was not intersectional. <laughs> I made them. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I am also a game designer um, and a game scholar, and am really interested in both looking at how games um, can be accessible to a lot of different people, but also how they can help us understand the experiences of a lot of different people. Um, and that's something very important sort of in um, my own design and in looking at uh, other games that that do it well. Um, so... Oh, on that note, my real-world credentials are... I have a <laughs> Master's of Social Work, and so I, I interacted with intersectionality first and foremost in a person and environment context. All right. So I think a good place to start is with a um, sort of basic introduction to what all of us mean when we say um, intersectionality um, so that we're all starting from the same page. Um, who would like to start uh, with that question? I can kind of get a little bit into that. Yeah. Uh, the, the intersectional feminist movement... That's okay. Oh, well, actually, let's wait on that. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's it's all okay. right. No problem. This is my wife, these things. We were just getting started, so... Okay, great. Um, introduce yourself. Yeah. Yes, yes I'm Krista White. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Galileo Games. Uh, I fiddle with game design, and I also invented Christicon. Okay, you yeah. want me to do that now? Yeah, go okay, ahead. Okay, so I mean, um, a lot of sort of the, the theoretical stuff behind intersectional feminism comes from the black feminist movement in the 1980s. It's really important to acknowledge the work that they did. Um, <clears throat> because while we're all benefiting from it at this table, that's where it started. Uh, but intersectional feminism uh, as a tool that I use frequently is to explain intersections of privilege. So you can be a white woman like I am, and I am a cis, I am a cis woman. I'm, I'm, gender I'm on the gender binary scale rather than not. Uh, I am, however, bisexual, so I have queer, this intersection of being queer, I have the intersection of being a disabled woman, and I have the intersection of having educational privilege. So there's a lot going on in any one person's life experience, and we can't just label that based on a single strand of evidence. 
So a woman of color will have different kinds of intersections of privilege or lack thereof. A man of color will have different ones. It, everybody has an individual intersectional identification. And for me, intersectionality is also important when you are looking at a um, particular group of people, for instance, women, uh, people of color, uh, queer folks, um, to take into account not only that identity, but other intersecting identities. Um, So I often, when I teach uh, women's studies and we talk about women, the question that I always will push my students to ask is which women, right? Which women are we talking about? Um, which women is this, um, whose experience is being focused on? Yeah. A lot of my grad school experience was raising my hand and saying, so what's the disabled woman experience on this? Because nobody would ever acknowledge that until I was really irritating. <laughs> All right. Um, so what we are really interested in trying to tackle on this panel Uh, is particularly this intersectional feminist perspective when it comes to game design. Um, So sort of what we wanted to start with is um, thinking about ways that games can be intersectional Um, and, you know, that there are multiple ways to make a game intersectional um, and to take on these these issues. So would anybody like to sort of start throwing out um, some answers? Sure. So one of the key things that I know that as someone embracing its intersectionality without really knowing, you know, everybody is going to be doing this from their own perspective and from their own biases and such. Uh, And one of the things that uh, many people can fall into in terms of pitfalls is tokenism and being like, okay, I got a black guy. Okay, uh, I got a woman of color. Okay, I got a disabled person. Cool, we're we're done, <laughs> um, and and that is that's good. That it's a step up from oh, we're assuming all your characters are going to be a heterosexual male, um, and a heterosexual cis white dude. Uh, so that's a, a step up, but it's also not. <laughs> it's also not. Um, it, it's also not just the way we want to be. We want to be more than just representative. We also want to be inclusive. Um, One of the ways that I think I really bring this up a lot is in terms of how you present your actual product, because (coughs) when you think of the people who are going to pick up your game, you need to think about more than just the people who can read your book. Um, People with disabilities, specifically with low vision, how are they going to engage with your material? Um, So when people come to me, I tell them, well, um, you should use EPUB because EPUB is screen reader friendly versus a PDF, which screen readers do not access as well. Um, what kind of fonts are you using? Because the, the idea that everybody who is going to play your game can see it is something that I think we really gloss over. That's one of the things that I talk about in terms of just the intersections of your readers. And I think that's a really good point. Um, I think a part of intersectionality is thinking about your players as a diverse group. Um, And that oftentimes, uh, when we are designing games, we are unconsciously picturing who the game is going to be played by. Um, And I think a trap that it's easy to fall into is uh, to imagine people like you playing the game. And so to take take that moment (laughs) to step back from the trap um, and think about how um, 
different kinds of people encountering your game would encounter it. Um, because something that might not seem uh, problematic to you or someone like you is going to present challenges and might be... Which is, it's been really interesting because now that I'm, I'm becoming pretty well known as the accessibility lady, but people will have me come to their game and now it used to be that I would roll in and I'd be I can't read your character sheet. Now I roll into a playtest and the, the person is like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that, that you play my games. <laughs> and so it's, I, I think by one of those things is just by raising the visibility. Because if you are a cishat dude writing a game and you put disabled characters in your game, that'll remind people that there are disabled characters in your world. In the same way that it basically says these people live here, even if it's in your game. Because it'll actually make people think, well, how would a blind person play this? Let me see. That's a lot of cursive. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been very uh, quiet. I, I think one of, the, one of the things that can be very helpful for starting to... Um, take a more intersectional perspective is to get out and um, read things by folks who are not like you. Um, and it can be very difficult because um, especially some of the better writers say controversial things that it can be very easy to take personally. Um, sometimes it's tough to read things that... Um, you know, people of color say about white people, if I'm, if I had a particularly bad day, you know, I'm liable to take it personally, but you can't take those things personally. Um, and so being able to distance yourself and say, oh, this person hates people who are like me, that's not the issue. The issue is that there are these problems and by not um, addressing them or understanding them, uh, or un or knowing about them, we unconsciously contribute to those issues, right? Like because we're benefiting from systems. That's right. We all benefit from systems, and um, you know, I'm pretty privileged w when compared with a lot of people who are not, who don't have uh, the same intersections that I do, right? But on the other hand being a woman in our global culture is a pretty big disadvantage. So um, it can be really rough to, and, and the whole intersectional thing is also not about dueling oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Like your uh, yeah, oppression the, is not worse or better. The privilege Olympics needs right. to stop. That's there right. is no bronze, yeah. silver, or gold for who has less privilege than you. Right, right. And I think that the, the next step to that is also we need to stop putting voices that seem like the most oppressed at the top yeah. and not listening to anybody else. Because what ends up happening is that then you only hear, and this is going to sound terrible, but it, it actually does matter, then you only hear the stories coming from somebody who has everything on the bingo sheet mm. and people with other experiences are going to experience things differently. A deaf trans woman of color who is a lesbian and it lives below the poverty line is going to have a very different experience from a deaf woman of color who went to Harvard Law. Mm -hmm. And they will both experience intense kinds of privilege or lack thereof, but they're, 
we don't want to put them in competition with each other right, right. or listen to one voice over the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. My, and, and that's one, I think that's one of the key um, elements of intersectionality that's so important is that I'm not in competition with anybody <laughs> because ultimately when you start looking at the systems that Elsa talked about, the systems all work against everyone yes. in one way or another. And so, you know, my feminism should be helping everybody, not just women and not just white women, but people of color, men, because the systems that seem to benefit cishet white men also disadvantage them in many ways. Mm -hmm. it, it occurs to me that some people in the audience may be confused by some of the terms we're yeah, using. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to just take a moment to check in. And Is anybody sort of totally lost? I think maybe for, even if nobody here is lost, people who might be uh, listening to the recording might not know. So... Um, so cis represents, or stands for cisgender, which is the opposite of transgender. And het stands for heteronormative, or someone who is attracted to someone of the opposite sex. And cisgender is a is a, a word that's used to describe for people who are not familiar with the term transgender. Um, uh, cis, when you are cisgendered, it means you identify as the same sex as the body that you were born in. Whereas transgender or gender fluid people there is a difference between the gender that they might physically be or that they were assigned oftentimes. Yes. So your your sex assigned at birth yes. yeah. and your your gender identity and expression yeah. are not aligned. And there's multiplicities of gender yeah. identities. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that's kind of another piece to add to that is that just because someone identifies as a cisgender woman, they may have other variations on that. Um, some people identify as femme. Uh, others might identify it as a dyke, but they might still identify as a, cis, a cisgendered woman. So it's it's more complicated. <laughs> Everything is more complicated. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's all pretty complicated, but thank you, Internet. <laughs> basically find information on anything you want to out online. Um, and I do want to address something that I hear a lot on mm -hmm. intersectionality panels. Um, I do these with relative frequency at academic conferences. And the one that always gets me is when people bring up race, they say, but white supremacy only hurts black people. I'm like, no, 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 no. White supremacy hurts all of us. The violence that is perpetuated by white supremacy is damaging to everyone. And that's, that's something that we all need to take responsibility for. So I think uh, one of the things that I also hear when I talk about intersectionality is how complicated it is. Um, and that it can feel very overwhelming, uh, first of all, to learn all of these uh, terms and to learn all of this stuff that uh, is not sort of often uh, talked about or uh, something that we sort of learn um, through a lot of sort of mainstream channels. Uh, and I think it can it can feel very uh, overwhelming and sort of like a challenge that's insurmountable. So one of the things that we did want to address on this panel was um, what happens if you make a mistake? Uh, what happens if you design a game and someone sits down at your playtest and is like, wow, no. Uh, 
right? <laughs> but what happens when you make a mistake? Because it's going to, to happen. happen. There's none of us here who have not made exactly. big, fat, awful mistakes. Yes. I made yep. one did <laughs> Right? So, yeah. So we, what, one of the things we thought it was important to talk about is the idea of sort of failing forward. Um, and so how do you sort of pick yourself up from your mistake and learn from it and move forward? So do any of you have... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, oh, sweet. Now you three years ago me. Um, so my first LARP that I wrote was a thing called Murder and Moogle Throat Manor. I like M's, whatever. Um, and it featured very prominently uh, a trans character. And the character was experiencing some gender identity problems. I wrote this character back when I was a fundamentalist Christian um, living in Southern California like four years before pulling out this LARP and rewriting it somewhat. And who did... The thing is, I feel incredibly ashamed of this. Um, My... The person who is my best friend, really, at this time, um, really, she's a trans woman, and... I, when I did the character send-outs, I asked, okay, are you more interested in playing, like, a Moriarty character or something else? And she selected Moriarty, and this Moriarty character was the one who is the one person dealing with transgender d- issues, and I gave this character to her without even thinking about it, and then she came to me afterwards and was like, you, you totally gave me this, this... A, you gave me a male character who was not... Like who was at a point that where they were really stigmatizing themselves for their their gender nonconformingness, but you totally didn't prep me for this. I was t- totally taken to- taken aback and surprised, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I totally failed as an ally here." So that was a not fun experience for me, and I still have a great deal of shame about it to this very day. However, it. It has a lasting impact in that now when I write um, about issues of gender, even if they're kind of mildly on the edge, I put it forth very at the very beginning and say, if this is uncomfortable for you, you since it is a part of the game, feel free to just chill out, walk out, it's okay. Um, and just letting you know there is some transphobia or whatever that is in this game, just, just letting you know. And that way people are prepped for it. I think my best advice is to be gracious. I find that a lot of people, when I come into their games, and they've asked me to come in and do disability advocacy for their game, they'll call me in and say, I have, uh, I'm trying to think of a non-actual example. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say somebody asks me to come in and do a LARP about the Marvel Universe, and they have Oracle. Uh, no, that would be DC. Um, so it's a DC and Marvel game, and they have Oracle, and they have Daredevil as characters that you can play. And um, able-bodied people are using adaptive devices. And I f- this is a thing that I find really uncomfortable because I don't believe that experiential education helps people. I believe that it puts able-bodied people in a situation where, uh, one, my safety gets compromised at cons if people are using de- adaptive devices and they don't actually need them. But two... It makes people who don't have those lived experiences think they have that lived experience because they did it for three hours. And so if I come into that game, um, I've I've had conversations where someone will fight me on it for hours. Mm -hmm. They will just completely push back rather than, they asked me here. (laughs) 
oh, just being open to the feedback and being gracious about the fact that you asked me to come and tell you whether or not this was a good idea. Because if you are asking someone from a minority group to tell you what they think, you actually need to listen to them and not treat them like the enemy when they actually give you a correction. I suppose on that note, soliciting advice from diverse sources? Yes. Yes. <laughs> In the first place is a great idea. So doing th running things at cons is great because you get, by default, uh, a pretty intersectional sample. I mean, it's not going to be perfect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what con you're running. Okay. I, yeah, I, I'm very... I, my, 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 <laughs> I spend a lot of time at double exposure cons and not many other cons. <laughs> Um, I think um, one of the, I mean, being gracious is absolutely key. And um, one of the things I've started to recognize in myself is when I want to argue with someone <laughs> who's trying to call something out that I'm doing, right. that's actually the voice of my privilege. Well, so I also think that call out yeah. culture can be kind of toxic. I yeah, want to address yeah. that. Yep. Because I think when you call somebody out, it's a really aggressive act, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. at least it can be. And I think that calling people in, that's a term that's being used now, okay. and being really gentle with someone and saying, I understand that you are trying to do a good thing. When that's the case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. when it is the case if somebody is just genuinely misguided and you know that their heart is in the right place, calling them in and being, again, gracious with their right. feelings right. because being called out can be really traumatic if it's done in a way that's not kind. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, the experience I'm thinking of that I had most recently was where we were creating characters for the Dresden Christicon that we ran at Dexcon just this last summer, mm -hmm. and I had created a character um, whose parents were first-generation Chinese immigrants, mm -hmm. and um, one of the aspects that I had written was that she, you know, was about her experience as a second-generation immigrant, um, and the person who I was talking to was like, well, this could be a problem because there are no mechanics in the fate system to kind of support this as a a meaningful mm -hmm. aspect um, and I sort of pushed back about it but then I realized what I was doing mm -hmm. and um, I took I ended up rewriting the aspect because I thought it would be better um, to do that and to be respectful than to like have my way ultimately what did it really matter <laughs> no, not at all I mean what I was really trying to do was sort of reflect more deeply the um, the, ex the immigrant experience mm -hmm. that a lot of people have but the this other person was absolutely right that that particular game doesn't support the kind of deep um, uh, mechanic that's necessary to really play that out in a meaningful way and it could easily have led to some really awful <laughs> interpretations of that character so uh, that was an instance where um, it was tough for me, and at first I was kind of a jerk about it, uh, and then I was like, you know, Krista, uh, 
this is not <laughs> this not is not you. cool and it's not about me that's exactly right and that's a lot of it is just saying it's not about me right right yeah and i think sometimes just uh being able to to take something in and just sit with it for a little while can be very useful because i think like you were saying earlier krista this idea um sometimes you'll read something uh that comes from a perspective that is different than yours that seems to be sort of calling out your privilege in a way that feels very uncomfortable Um, and I think that same even if somebody critiques your game in a very respectful and Mm -hmm. gentle way it can feel very uncomfortable especially when it's a game because it's your creative exactly you've spent a lot of time and effort and thought creating this thing and then somebody shows up and says this hurts my feelings or this reflects something really toxic in our society and I don't like it Mm -hmm. yeah and I think sometimes just like taking it and and letting it sit for a while and sort of coming back to it after you've had that emotional response gives you the ability to reflect a little bit more and to be able to say like you know okay I've had my moment where it was you know I had my like upset and now I can come back and see it's not about me I've given this piece of advice about five times this weekend (laughs) and this piece of advice is when you get feedback during a play test don't explain yourself Mm-hmm. You just say thank you. You just say thank you. Just say thank um, you, and and yeah. I learned this from doing theater for 15, 20 years. Um, when your director tells you to take a note, you say thank you when you sit down. <laughs> because there's no point in arguing with the person right during notes at tech at the end of a three-hour run. <laughs> All right, so... What we've touched on this a little bit, I think, already, but I want to uh, tackle it a little bit more in depth. Um, so, just as all of us have aspects of our identities that um, give us privilege, and aspects of our identities that um, are are not privileged, um, so we can be allies to lots of different groups of people. Um, and one of the questions that we wanted to sort of think about was how to be a good ally and particularly how do you how do you write about um, and design games about marginalized groups um, particularly groups that are marginalized in an area where you yourself have some form of privilege um, I can address that with Dead Scare yeah um, definitely so I wrote Dead Scare which was <coughs> 1950s housewives fighting zombies in a Soviet engineered zombie apocalypse um and it is not as fun and quirky as that sounds. <laughs> uh, it can be, but it's also really upsetting. I had one of my writers email me um, this week and tell me, okay, the book gutted me. I need a couple more days to write my piece. I went and did research. I'm, I'm Jewish, so I included Jewish women in the game because that was an important experience to me. Not just because I'm a Jewish woman, but because in the United States in the 1950s, we had a lot of immigrants coming over from Europe who were escaping post-Holocaust Europe. Mm -hmm. And so the experience of a group of people seeing a bunch of dead people walking around was something I felt was important to address. But the other group that was really important to me was addressing people of color. Because in the 1950s, this is before the civil rights movement, This is during Jim Crow. This is not a nice time to be different. Mm -hmm. And so I went and did a lot of research. I watched a lot of movies. I talked to a lot of the women of color in my community, uh, I guess in our community. 
um, I had a lot of them write me stretch goals. And I, I wrote some stuff that really scared me because I went and I needed to write from the experience of a woman of color. And I needed to do that respectfully, but I also <clears throat> knew that it wasn't their job, and this is something I talk about a lot. It is not the job of the people who are marginalized who always do that work. Mm -hmm. Amen. So I knew it was my job as a white woman to learn how to write that experience and to do it respectfully. So I actually sent it out to people of color, and I said, this scene where a woman of color is in Manhattan, she gets eaten by a horde because a white man won't let her in through the front entrance of a building. He keeps pointing her to the service entrance, and the horde just basically eats her alive. And it's horrifying. But it's also true to the time period. I could absolutely see that happening. And I asked, was this something that could happen? Yeah, that's terrifying. Please keep that. Hmm. So... I guess that's an example, is like, reach out, but also do the work yourself. I think one of the difficult things that I have um, as someone um, who thinks about these issues a lot, and I'm still struggling with um, being able to write games that are about people who are not like me, because I do still have this fear of making those big, fat mistakes, um, is that... Um, I'm still trying to negotiate how to talk to um, the people who are members of groups that my story talks about that I'm not part of, um, but not be like, hey, you're the black person I know. Could you please check this off and make sure that it's okay? Like, it's not my best friend. I don't want to be the, my best friend was bla is black and she says it's okay, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's something that I'm still s trying to figure out how to do. I have an answer for you. Um, it's hire people. Sure. <laughs> because okay, yeah, yeah. that's the yeah. thing is that's my right. role now. Somebody yeah. emails yeah. me and says, hey, I want you to write about accessibility or disabled mm -hmm. people for my game. I'm like, my base fee is $50. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great, great And I think research is also really, Absolutely. really important. Yes. Like yeah. that, because for me, um, what we've sort of touched on is the, the, the token, right? That you're like, oh, my one trans friend or my one queer friend or my one black friend read it and said it was okay. Right, right? Yeah. Like, you need more no. of that. Um, but a really good way to, like, do a lot of that work yourself is to read or watch movies. Like you said, do that research where you get diverse voices. I actually highly recommend that everybody watch Selma. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Just, that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> Another thing that I really want to bring up when it comes to writing about marginalized groups um, is... There, and this is something that I find myself falling into quite a lot because um, a lot of the, the sort of experiences that I read about as a sociologist are about inequality and they're about all of the, the shitty things that happen to marginalized people. Um, and while I think it's really important to honor and voice those experiences because they happen and we don't want to ignore them, I think it's equally important that we not reduce the experience of marginalized people to yeah. shittiness. And amen. Can I, yes. can I give you an amen on that? Yeah. Uh, hashtag shameless plug. This is what I'm doing with the Fate Accessibility Toolkit. 
mm-hmm. because I was seeing that a lot of the work I was doing was on stuff that's like horror games or how does a blind person deal with the Necronomicon and that's all really fun for me mm-hmm. but I really wanted to write about normal disabled people doing awesome stuff mm-hmm. and so the Fate Accessibility Toolkit is exactly that it's you can play disabled people and these are the ways to do it to make it not suck mm. Yeah, so I think a big part of being a good ally is being able to celebrate... Normalize experiences, that's what it is. There you go. You normalize the visibility, and then it becomes less toxic. I suppose one example of something that I've been doing is, in my games, I always include at least one gender-fluid character or someone who goes by alternate pronouns, and... Sometimes it's it's really interesting doing playtesting with people because sometimes they just don't see it and they default to a him almost 100% of the time unless they're looking out for that sort of thing. And so, like, uh, especially because I choose, like, a gender-neutral name, like Robin. It's, it's a name that doesn't evoke masculinity or femininity necessarily. However, very frequently, uh, when there's a gender-neutral character, all the players will sort of default to him, him, him. And I'm like... Look at the page. <laughs> Just FYI, it's actually not a him; it's a them, and that that has that has been highlighting to me that I've not been gutsy enough with including gender fluid characters. So I don't know. That's my thought on that. I actually, my big mistake that I made with Dead Scare wasn't necessarily a mistake. It's just a trap of the setting. Um, and it's and this will happen to people where it's not it's not a, it's not a mistake you can fix. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that happens. I wrote about the 1950s. Uh, trans people were not really visible mm-hmm. in the 1950s, and I got a lot of shit from people who I really love, who were really mad at me for not including trans characters, and I I actually had to say because it was one of those situations where it's like I fully acknowledge and celebrate your experience but by the same token I can't create something in a historically based game that just isn't there and I think it would just get more ugly if I do that I I could see a lot of anti-trans violence Mm -hmm. coming out of the game if I did put it in Mm -hmm. and I didn't feel like that would serve the purpose of what they were asking for and so I, I had to say no and it was really hard because I understood that they felt like I was, they felt like I was erasing what they were experiencing, mm-hmm. and I was trying. And we finally did come to the agreement that actually made sense. Like that wasn't visible in the communities where the game is often played. And it's something I want to address in future expansions. But in the core book, it, there wasn't the space to treat it with the respect that was necessary. And I think that's the other thing to take away is being a good ally sometimes means I hear you and this is why I don't feel comfortable doing it because I know that it's not the right space. For example, throwing a bunch of disabled people into a transhumanist game and basically philosophizing on their experience without understanding disability philosophy. So, if you all are in agreement with this, I'd like to open it up to questions sure. from the audience. Sure. Absolutely. So 
one of the things I always wonder about is like if you're dealing with pre-generated characters, um, then as a general rule, <coughs> people will assume that they're on the axis of privilege if you don't say otherwise, but then if you do say otherwise, you run into a play space where someone who is on the privileged axis plays someone off of it, and that can also be problematic, so I don't know if you, ha if you have ideas on how to navigate that space. Uh, I am so glad that you asked that question, mm -hmm. because that is something that I have really struggled with as well. Um, I... GM a lot of conventions mm -hmm. and I have often had the experience where um, I sit down at a table and everyone at the table um, is white or everyone at the table is a cis male um, and how do I ask them to play these marginalized characters with respect um, and I think a lot of it is how you introduce the game and if you really sort of give the expectations up front. Um, so I uh, am working on a game called Glitzy Nails, um, which is set at a nail salon. And the workers at the nail salon are immigrants. Um, and one of the things that came out in the playtest was to really emphasize, as I'm introducing the game, um, you're playing immigrants, but please don't use a fake accent. Um, and also, you know, you're playing immigrants um, one of the things that you want to do is think about stereotypes and how you can um, play against those stereotypes or really make your, your character human um, and a well-rounded, complex character as opposed to just a stereotype. Um, so I think sometimes just putting those expectations up front can do a lot to keep players from falling into to that sort of like easy way. Um, in Dead Scare, I run a game that's all women and children, and frequently it's an entire table of people playing women, and some of my players are men, and they've, sometimes it's the first time they've ever played a woman. And so a lot of what ends up happening is that there will be education at the table, and I've just gotten to the point where that's okay. Like, I had a player once who did something that just... I, every other, I didn't say anything, but every other woman at the table looked at him and went, a woman wouldn't do that. <laughs> like, it's just, that's not, that's, that's not how I would react in a dangerous situation with men. Mm -hmm. And he, because he was acting in a very male way to a threat from male uh, intruders. And so it was like, all the women at the table basically shut it down. And we had like a three minute conversation of, yes, why? Okay, we're going to just take a break. I'm going to get some water. You guys suss this out. I'll be back in two minutes. Came back. They retconned the game. We kept moving. But sometimes you just have to. I think... Um, I know it's uh, controversial uh, for some folks, but I think the X card can be a tool that yes. you as the GM can use, too. Yes. So if somebody comes in with a fake accent, you can touch the X card and say, oh, I'm sorry, we, uh, we, I didn't explain this adequately at the beginning. Um, we're really trying, this is a game about trying to empathize and understand, stand in somebody else's shoes. So if you could, you know, not use fake accents uh, during the course of this game, that would be great. Is the X card controversial? Yes. For some people it is, yes. Okay. <laughs> could you explain the X card compared to other similar systems? 
Uh, I'm not familiar with any similar system, uh, actually. Then, the X, the X, can you explain so, the X card? Yeah, I can absolutely <laughs> explain the X card. It's just a little... Usually it's an index card that somebody has drawn an X on, and it goes in the middle of the game table, and at the beginning of the game, before people choose characters, before uh, anything gets started, um, the GM explains what it is, which is... Um, it's there to help people, help create a safe space for everyone at the table. And so if something happens at the table that is upsetting for you, um, you can touch the X card and uh, people will, um, you can either take a break and talk with the GM privately about what it was. Um, sometimes it's obvious to everybody at the table um, that, um, what was going on, but sometimes it's as simple as, well, I'm not okay with that thing happening to my character. It's not necessarily something that's personally upsetting to you or that um, is problematic in an intersectional way, but it might just be like, well, I didn't imagine that that would be the outcome for my character on this. Can we, you know, I talk also- about it? just want to point out that sometimes it's okay to not explain. Yeah. Like, yeah, if it yeah. is a thing that you do not want to share with a group of strangers, yes, yep, it absolutely. is totally okay to just say, that is a non-starter subject, let's move on. Yeah, and you just gloss over whatever it was, which is usually, you know, fairly obvious for folks at the table. For um, me, it's eyeballs. Yeah. Eyeballs show Eyeball. up in horror games, okay. and I'm yeah. just like, nope! No eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. No blood. Um... So that's what the X card is. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you can use it, what I'm suggesting is that you can use it as a GM to say, you know, that's not, that's not something that I I'm want to, as the GM, that I yes. want to have part of this game. So let's just move on. And, you know, none of us will do that anymore. And, so. I mean, that's also just, it's setting up the expectations of your culture of play. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly on the hour that's kind of being. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Ready. Great. <laughs> thank you. So All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.